Good morning and welcome to River City 360 Views and News from Around Winnipeg. My name is Nolan Bicknell. With me as always is my co-host Robert Zirk. On today's show, the importance of diagnosing autism as early as possible. Dr. Kirsten Wirth from Wirth Behavioral Health Services joins us in studio to tell us about a new program where she's helping families recognize the signs of autism as early as possible. Then we'll speak with Thona Longneck and Karen St. Marie from Frontier College. They'll tell us about the Truth and Reconciliation Youth Literacy Camp and how youth in Winnipeg gained and maintained valuable literacy skills. Then we'll speak with Caro Beaulieu of the Manitoba Indigenous Cultural Education Centre, and we'll learn about their Community Connections program that's helping people from all walks of life learn about and connect with Indigenous culture. And as always, we'll be speaking with Noah Ehrenberg about This Week in Winnipeg through the lens of Community News Commons, Winnipeg's Citizen Journalism Project. We've got all this, some great tunes, and much, much more on today's episode of River City 360. Good morning and welcome to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you this morning. It is officially winter out. You look outside, you see snow, you see white. It's a winter wonderland, Robert. How did you uh, survive the blizzard earlier this week? Absolutely. Well, I've been keeping warm. Um, I guess technically it isn't officially winter. Even Why? Though what makes it winter? December 21st, the, the winter solstice. Is that the right? first day of winter? Isn't it December 21st? I don't even know. It seems like winter would start, in at least in Manitoba, you know, mid-November. Oh, we're already but... expecting it at the end of October, oh, basically. Yeah, exactly. So I guess if the official first day of winter isn't for a couple weeks, like, what do we call this? Pre-winter? I am, I am not sure, but we're in for this and and then some, it yeah. sounds like, for, for quite a few months ahead. Yep. So we might as well make the best of it and enjoy it. For sure. I hope your car wasn't buried too deep. And I uh, hope you didn't get stuck or anywhere earlier this week because it was treacherous out there. Uh, we've actually got a winter-themed song to kick things off. So how about uh, we get right into it? Our Winter Love by Bill Purcell right here on River City 360. Thank you. 
Throughout the next year on River City 360, we'll be bringing you stories connected to the themes of Winnipeg's Vital Signs 2017, a program led by the Winnipeg Foundation that measures the vitality of our community through research and surveys. For more information, visit wpgfdn.org slash vital signs. Thank you for listening to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you this morning, and we're now joined in studio by a very special guest. We're joined by Dr. Kirsten Worth from Worth Behavioral Health Services. She is an adjunct professor at the University of Manitoba, and she's actually the project manager of the Autism Early Identification Project through the Manitoba Families for Effective Autism Treatment. Dr. Worth, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So we wanted to have you on the show because uh, this project's very interesting. It's all about sort of early detection of autism and I guess the first question is why is it so important to detect autism at an early age? The most important reason for early detection is so that there's access to early intensive behavioral intervention which is um, the most researched and uh, well-established treatment program for children with autism and we know that the earlier that children start that intervention the better their outcomes in terms of independence and um, functioning in society so what w- what is exactly does it mean when you're like what 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 do you do differently when you know earlier on that uh, your child might uh, have have autism you would get access to an early intensive behavioral intervention program. Um, in Manitoba, there is a funded program through St. Amant Autism Programs that offers that for about two years and then support into school as well. Um, they can also, if they are on a wait list, because there are extensive wait lists, and that's another reason for the importance of the early detection is because if you're going to be waiting, then the sooner you're waiting, right. the sooner you're going to get into those services. So they say it's about a two-year wait, and and the earlier the better, obviously. So if you're, and I also read that um, parents realize that there's maybe something going on at, as early as six to 12 months. So if you can get in that early and, and detect it, then then you're much better off. But what what exactly can a parent do differently once they know that they have this diagnosis? They can start Uh, researching what different strategies they can be using. They can start learning how to um, teach their children the skills that they are lacking and that they need to function more independently. They can um, help minimize or mitigate any behavioral problems that might arise as a result of those skill deficits. And so the more that they can start intervening in those things sooner, the easier it will be in the long run and the more um, skills they can learn. What would be the difference between a child who's diagnosed early and a child who's diagnosed later in in years? It really depends because um, it, autism is considered a spectrum disorder, meaning that there are children all the way from one end all the way to the other end of the spectrum. And so some children might have um, be more profoundly affected and some children might have what's considered more of a mild autism diagnosis. And so their needs are going to differ greatly. So it probably it, it's a case by case basis, I would imagine each each child is different. But what are some of the early signs of autism for our listeners who might have children or grandchildren um, that they can look for early 
up to six months is are they already showing um i would say that the majority of parents will say that they knew something was different with their child right from when they were you know six to 12 months old Um, some parents will say that they um, really started noticing more around 18 months because then the the gaps between children and their same age peers kind of get a little bit bigger at that point so they could be looking for maybe difficulty with eye contact or um, avoidance or not looking at faces because you'll see often uh, infants will be looking at faces and smiling and cooing and you know those kinds of things and so sometimes um, children with autism aren't doing those things and it's noticeably different from what other infants might Mm. do by around 12 months of age children are pretty good at imitating waving by um Responding to social interact, well, even quite earlier, uh, children are very good at responding to social smiles and gazes and, um, you know, even some joint attention responses um, that children with autism often have difficulty with. So the social reciprocity, like the back and forth or looking over and a parent will often look at something of interest to the child, point at it and say, look over there. And so even very young children will turn and look and at least try to see what their parents Mm -hmm. are showing them. And often kids with autism have difficulty with with that. A little bit later on, um, that leads into difficulty with perspective taking or understanding that other people separate from them have different perspectives than they do. Interesting. Um, They could be sometimes engaging in what we call... um, stereotypies so that might be repetitive sounds or words that don't really make sense um, or repetitive Mm. motor movements like flapping their hands or um, walking on their toes or um, rocking back and forth repetitively so we'd be looking for a lot of those different kinds of repetitive behaviors that seem kind of different from what you see other children doing so how long have you been working in this area of expertise and what have you sort of uh, experienced in in your time in this area I've been working in this area for over 15 years Um, I started at Um, the University of Manitoba and St. Amant doing research at St. Amant with individuals with developmental disabilities and autism um, in the research program there. And then I started um, working with severe problem behaviors from individuals who lived at St. Amant and then individuals who were in the school there. And then I moved into the autism programs and um, specifically worked with children with autism in early behavioral intervention programs and so I continue to do a lot of that work now. Is, is, is Canada traditionally underdiagnosed or where where does Winnipeg and Manitoba sit on that on that list? That is a good question and I would say that pretty much across North America um, it's children are consistently not diagnosed um, early enough or uh, sometimes not until they're adults but that I hope is changing as the awareness is growing and people know what they're looking for Um, there's been some studies done in Canada looking at what the average age of diagnosis is and the a study that came out last year they were saying the average is about four Mm. Um, I've been told by some um, some people in our province that well our average age at the child development clinic is more around three three and a half Um, I'm not sure how current 
treatment that is. However, that doesn't take into account the children that don't get diagnosed before the age of five. Oh. Once children hit the age of five, um, they can go through the Manitoba Adolescent Treatment Center to get diagnosed. They can go um, through various pediatricians or psychiatrists for diagnosis. They can go to any private psychologist for diagnosis. And some school psychologists might do those diagnoses as well. And so there's no centralized um form or database to collect that information. So I would say the numbers that we have are preschool numbers only, and they are highly underrepresented. So I guess education is the most important thing, but how do we close that gap of getting more diagnoses diagnoses, uh, under the, you know, under the age of three and even as soon as possible? How do we close that gap? I think a lot of it is, um, to educate parents on both listening to themselves about their trusting their trusting their instincts trusting their instincts that's right there was actually a study that came out of calgary a year or two ago um, by a very well-known pediatrician um, and his group that found that the best predictor of an autism diagnosis was actually the parental concerns and so the the outcomes and recommendations of that were to physicians hey listen to the parents when they have concerns so the one thing is um, giving parents the freedom and the empowerment to advocate for their children and to keep pushing when they feel like no one's listening and they're not getting appropriate referrals or assessment. So that's one thing for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other thing is making sure that physicians and pediatricians and other clinicians that work with children um, at a young age understand the importance uh, and the critical nature of the early identification because for a lot of other diagnoses you know they're going to get some services that they need for their specific problems and um and they don't like to put labels on children too early, which I right. wholeheartedly agree with. For me, the importance of a label is whatever treatment is attached to it. That's the mm-hmm. sole Im- uh, importance of that right. label. And for children with autism, it is so critical. For sure. So for any of our listeners who m- might think that this is something that may be coming into their lives, uh, how, w- what steps can they take to, to get on this as early as possible? Uh, We have a funded um, screening program uh, that was just funded for a second year through the Winnipeg Foundation that we're very, very excited and pleased about. And so they can contact uh, me at... 204-807-6779. 204-807-6779. They can go to the website, worthbehavioralhealth.com, and they can just uh, self-refer, and we can do a screening and help them get on their way. Or they could, um, there are lots of screens online, actually. They can um, go to Autism Speaks website, and they'll have some online screeners. They can ask their pediatrician to do what's called the MCHAT that's another screener for um, toddlers Great. with autism. And they can um, push again for that uh, referral for a diagnostic Perfect. assessment. So, I mean, the earlier the better, as Dr. Worth was just saying. Um, so, if you think that this might be something uh, that your child or grandchild may be uh, dealing with, then you can call again 204 807 6779 or go to worthbehavioralhealth.com. Uh, thank you, Dr. Kirsten Worth, for very much for talking to us today. I really appreciate your insights. Thanks so much for having me. 
Stay tuned to River City 360 throughout the year for more stories connected to Winnipeg's Vital Signs 2017, a program led by the Winnipeg Foundation that measures the vitality of our community through research and surveys. For more information about Vital Signs, visit wpgfdn.org slash vital signs. Thanks, Nolan. Coming up after the break, Thona Longneck and Karen St. Marie of Frontier College are going to be telling us all about a great program for Indigenous youth to keep their literacy skills sharp over the summer holidays. But first, speaking of holidays, here's Fluter's Holiday by Bert Camford right here on River City 360. Welcome back to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you this morning. And I'm now joined in studio by two very special guests. We've got Thona Longneck, the Regional Manager for Manitoba, Saskatchewan Region of Frontier College, and Karen St. Marie, the Regional Coordinator for Manitoba at Frontier College. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank, Thank you, you for you. having us. So uh, my first question, before we, we're, we're having you in today to talk about the Truth and Reconciliation Youth Literacy Camp that Frontier College puts on. But before we get into that, I wanted to just maybe for our listeners who haven't heard of Frontier College, tell us about what, what your role is and what Frontier College is all about. 
Okay, well, I'll begin. Um, Frontier College is a national literacy college that has been around since 1800s, and it has um, programs throughout uh, Canada, and we actually focus on summer literacy camps during the summer months, obviously, to deal with summer reading loss, and we engage communities in those, and we go out to First Nations and deliver those camps at that point. We also do programming during the year with Um, schools and community organizations. We do a lot of partnerships and collaboration in delivering um, our literacy programs. And what 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 is the importance of keeping kids sort of sharp throughout the summer months when they're when they're away from school? Uh, That summer learning loss is something that Frontier College has had many years of experience in data collection, in research, and understanding that grade levels are seen to decrease once we have that break, and everyone needs a break, but how we engage our brains over the summer can really benefit in that re-entry in the school system. So in our First Nations communities all across Canada, we see that the summer learning loss is lessened by being involved with literacy, numeracy activities in our summer literacy camps. Great. So you guys launched a Truth and Reconciliation Youth Literacy Camp, and uh, I, I just wanted to, wh- why was this program launched and, and what was its intention? The first proposal that we had had was a discussion between uh, the Winnipeg Foundation, CETA, uh, the Community Education Development Association, and Frontier College based around our experience and our programming that we have had with many successes with First Nations communities with our summer literacy camps. So we started that conversation of partnering with an organization that works with many Aboriginal youth, um, grade seven and eight specifically, and how we could support um, their core program school year. So during the summer months, we thought that the best fit would be obviously to follow a successful program of our summer literacy camps. And that's how the first initial talks began. And what, what, what are these youth learning and what are they doing throughout the summer at these camps? So in general, we really look to embed those literacy and numeracy activities into activity into programming. Those activities are something that we would expect within a summer camp. We are outside, we're using uh, water with a water balloon relay, and what we're doing then is incorporating literacy. So it may be a capture the word with water balloons, and what we're doing is going outside, being engaged in activities, but still using our brains, so really using word scrambles and ideas of connecting with summer camps, but then the literacy and numeracy activities are part of the camp. Reading, reading is a is a key component to engaging our youth and then to be investigating more activities or more ideas around the residential school experience is how we began thinking of the summer camp with truth and reconciliation as our focus mm-hmm. in that process. So reading investigation on the internet but then also to be able to have those real life situations so the activities themselves came from our summer camps but our uh, investigation of the residential school experience became much greater than just the stories that we were um, reading it was the engagement of others and we can talk a little bit about that too sure I, I would imagine that's a 
well, I mean, you're going to summer camp, but you're dealing with these very heavy situations. So what was the response of the kids when they would go there and, and experience these things and learn about something that's so, uh, I mean, d it's dark, but it's integral to the Canadian hist to the Canadian history. So what was sort of the response of, of the kids who took part? Well, first of all, um, I think that the response was a lot depended on the child and their involvement and what they knew about um, residential schools and how it impacted their own family lives. So you did have children who were aware of it and also children who weren't aware of actually what had happened. So having the community elders come in and share their stories and survivors like residential school survivors go through um, a day in a life in uh, residential school really engage the children in wanting to learn more of what happened and what was the history of it and I think that um, through that they were able to educate themselves and become very aware and they got more involved in the programming by really looking at themselves and how they see where they fit in the process of understanding um, Indian residential schools and what the impacts that played on so many thousands of Indigenous people. It seems like it could be a very enlightening experience as well. I would imagine that ex experiencing that, especially for the first time in that setting, has got to be pretty incredible. Um, Karen, what was, w when you were there, what, what was some of the responses of the kids that you saw on a day-to-day -day basis? It was a time for many of those campers, we call them campers when they're in our summer literacy camps, that uh, they were able to take time to reflect on their learning. So that's that whole action of reconciling and understanding the experience either from a first-hand um, story from one of our elders being present or whether it was literature that they had been reading and, and working through. The reflection time came at um, not just when that information was coming but also on some of our field trips and other activities that were happening so we had to be very mindful when we had our staff working alongside these campers they're grade seven and eight uh, youth and those youth are going to express themselves in many different ways so our staff as all of our summer literacy camp staff are uh, trained uh, by frontier college but then we worked with the national center for truth and reconciliation and provided an extra day of training for these staff as well to be mindful and very aware of the youth and how they may express themselves and how they may be interpreting some of that information that they're taking in. This may have been much more of an investigation or time allotment allowed to many of these youth to um, understand many of the stories. So we needed to be quite um, aware of their different emotions and maybe sometimes it became um, very apparent in behavior and that was something we were going to be prepared for but then maybe it was also um, the quiet ones the ones that maybe just are not looked upon as you know uh, looking out of out of a different scope or a different magnitude that they're taking it all in we have right. to be very mindful of that so many of the staff became part of a conversation with the group they um, after an activity or an after a field trip um, the Human Rights Museum was one of our field trips that we were able to uh, have our 
our campers go with the staff, we took a lot of time to discuss those uh, those activities and, and the campers' interpretation of those activities. It's it's potentially a very traumatic uh, conversation and experience, so you, you almost need time to decompress and kind of Absolutely. talk to everyone and make sure everyone's on the same page and everyone's okay because it's a very... That's right difficult subject to talk about. Why Why was this particular program launched? Like what was Fro- Frontier College's uh, sort of uh, uh, mindset when they wanted to, to launch this program? Well, I believe that we already have our First Nations summer um, career camps, which are focused towards teens. And what we did when we went through the partnership is look at, okay, um, truth and reconciliation, and how can we incorporate that into a program that we already have? And that's, you know, there is a model and it's developed, and we're just focusing on educating our youth. Um, and that's basically how we began. And so I think with that said, uh, we were able to accomplish what we needed this year through that three-week program, and I really look forward to um, the future and hopefully being able to continue with um, the Truth and Reconciliation camps. One more question before I let you um, both go. Why is Truth and Reconciliation important for all Canadians? Well, I believe that um, truth and reconciliation is important for all Canadians because it's our responsibility to uh, be educated and aware of our history and how it impacts each of uh, each family throughout Canada and educating newcomers to Canada on um, our history and how it impacted the Indigenous people. So um, I believe that through education and awareness, we're able to accomplish that. And the more collaboration we have with agencies and w- the more we work together, I think the stronger we build um, that awareness and able to get the point um, driven. So, yeah. Well said. Karen, do you have anything to add? I want to maybe speak about when we had visitors to our camp and one of the visitors we were able to welcome into the camp was uh, Marie Bouchard from the Winnipeg Foundation and Marie was uh, gracious enough to come and read one of uh, the stories to our campers and you know you see that uh, picture of uh, the campers gather around in a circle having an adult come to them and to share a story and the, the author was actually um, from northern Manitoba um, the story is Grey Eyes and that book was uh, one that many of the campers had gravitated towards and wanted to read more because Marie was able to come and and read a portion of that so we all have a role to play in understanding and doing our own reconciling with the resident school experience and what our history is so it's great to be able to say that we've partnered with the Winnipeg Foundation and in other ways and this has been a a, a great partnership. It's those community connections that are going to be really important moving forward I would imagine. Absolutely. Well thank you very much uh, Thona Longneck. She's the regional manager for the Manitoba slash Saskatchewan region of Frontier College and Karen St. Marie the regional coordinator for Manitoba at Frontier College. Very very much appreciate your time and thank you for uh, talking to us today. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks, Nolan, and thanks again to Thona Longneck and Karen St. Marie of Frontier College. Coming up after the break, we're going to speak with Carol Beaulieu of the Manitoba Indigenous Cultural Education Centre, and she's going to tell us all about the different programs and workshops that the centre offers to help teach Winnipeggers about Indigenous culture. But first, 
Let's play a song. Here's Angel on My Shoulder by Shelby Flint, right here on River City 360. Got an angel on my shoulder, got a penny in my pocket, and I found a four-leaf clover, and I put it in my locket, wished on all the stars above me, and I caught the nearest rainbow, gonna find someone to love me. Gonna find someone to love Well, I tossed a lot of nickels in a wishing well And saved the fortune, set the fortune cookies tell I got a lucky penny and a mustard seed But a warm and tender love is all I need And I want a love that lingers And is stronger through and through my fingers that I find the boy to love me true and I'm gonna love him too well I tossed a lot of nickels in a wishing well and saved the fortunes that the fortune cookies tell I got a lucky penny and a mustard seed but a warm and tender love is all Stronger through and through So I'm gonna cross my fingers That I find the boy to love me Thank you for listening to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you this morning, and we're now joined in studio by Carol Beaulieu. She is the Community Connections Coordinator at the Manitoba Indigenous Cultural Education Center. Did I get your name right there, Carol? Yeah, that's good. Perfect. Thank you for joining us today. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me. So we wanted to have you in to talk about a very cool program, a Community Connection program, which is kind of a, it's a unique program in the sense that it's tailored to the size and the and the needs of each group that comes in. But before we get to that, let's talk about a little bit about what the center does in general, the Manitoba Indigenous Cultural Education Center. Um, just give us the rundown about what you guys do and what your uh, mandate is. Okay. Well, the Indigenous Cultural Education Center has been around for over 30 years. Uh, we're located in the Point Douglas area at 119 Sutherland Avenue. And our main goal is to promote uh, knowledge, awareness, and educate anyone who's interested in Indigenous cultures in Manitoba or even within Canada. So you've been doing this for 30 years. What yeah. what has that been like starting 30 years ago and in, in compared to how it's changed sort of recently in, in, in the general uh, reaction to, to the desire to have that knowledge? It has come a long way. There's a lot more people who are more specific about what they want to know. For example, they want to know specifically about treaties, um, residential school, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. They're more specific in their knowledge because I'm, if the assumption is that over the years, the knowledge has been passed down through school and other areas, whereas before, like 30 years ago, people, some people knew absolutely nothing right. about Indigenous culture. So it has come a long way in that regard. And who, who are your patrons that are coming in to learn about this stuff? Who, like what, what types of people come in to, to, to gain more knowledge? Well, a lot of times it's people who are in education, 
uh, either it's teachers or students in post-secondary or high school students. We get a lot of um, middle, middle years because that's where Indigenous studies kind of starts in the school system. So we get a lot of that. And also just the average person off the street. And interesting, uh, interestingly enough, we get individuals who have been displaced from their culture. Mm. Like they, and they're trying they, to reconnect yeah, with, with the Yeah, they've been adopted out or they've lost their f- biological family in some, some way through adoption or some other reason. And they want to reconnect with who they are or where they come from. And how do you tailor the, the information based on diff- all those different sort of walks of life coming in to learn about this? How do you tailor the different content based on who someone is and where they are in their particular journey? Well, when somebody comes in off the street, we kind of just have to wing it. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully we have the knowledge or we can at least direct that person to the right individual or group of people. Um, but otherwise, what we do is we ask what specific areas that you do want to learn about ahead of time. Mm-hmm. That way they can come in and we can tailor it to that, um, to that area. That was kind of the most interesting <coughs> thing is it's tailored to the size and sort of needs of each group or mm-hmm. pe- person that comes in. So. W- Give me an example of of different experiences that different groups can have based on what they are trying to get out of the program. Okay. Uh, Let's see if I can think of a couple. Yeah. Um, Like if it's a school, uh, say say a a group of kids that are coming in versus a group of teachers or or versus a group of adults who just want to learn about their their own Indigenous culture. Okay. Uh, We did have a group of high school students um, a couple of months ago. And they wanted to know specifically about treaties Mm -hmm. and how that impacted First Nation people. So that's exactly what we talked about. We talked about the different treaties for this area, for example, and then also went over the treaties and what it was supposed to be for and how it's worked itself, how it's played out in the last so many hundred years and to see where we're at now and to see how they understand what a treaty is. It's not necessarily, I mean, anybody can make a treaty, but... They need to know like how long the impact of this of that such a thing over hundreds of years, and it's still being used to this day. Right, and sort of the modern um, the modern effects on indigenous and non-indigenous people when it comes to those treaties, I would imagine, mm-hmm. is still a pretty yeah. hot button topic. Oh yes. Yeah. So, so who who's brought in to ha- to uh, facilitate these programs, and like how is it a back and forth conversation? Is it a presentation? W- what kind of happens? Well, we do different things. Uh, sometimes we'll do presentations. We do the workshop. We do an activity, or we can do a video. It de- all depends on what's going to get the information out there as as well as possible. And that's how we do it. And, of course, the age. I mean, we're not going to um, do a presentation to uh, six-year-olds, you know. Right. <laughs> They'd be asleep in no time. More, but, more, uh, more coloring books and, <laughs> and games probably yeah. at that age. Yeah, yeah. so we, do, we, we try to base it on the, on the age of the, of the participant. And if it's uh, also we recently met with a group of teachers. They just wanted to know, they know about the whole indigenous component in the curriculum in social studies for example but they want to just enhance it like maybe they could bring their kids down to our center and talk kind of like a field trip yeah Yeah. talk about something more specific so those are the kinds of things that we try to do try to accommodate whatever the learning is that's very interesting so Mm -hmm. why why is this work important why is why is uh, getting this knowledge and this uh, information out to the public important well it's important because people do want to know, and I, I think they have a right to know. And also, sometimes people are scared to ask. And it's, we try to make it in a very calm environment so that, uh, and non-threatening 
so that you can ask any question, even if you think it's inappropriate or maybe, you know, you could offend someone. Or uncomfortable, yeah. Yeah, it's, we leave that open. I mean, you can do that. It's, it's a place of comfort, and you can ask those types of questions. And there's nothing wrong with that because you're not going to know unless you ask, right? Right. So, so you've been doing this, well, not maybe you personally, but the center has been around for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, give me some examples of, of the reactions of people who have come through the center and, and participated in some of these programs. What, what do they go away with? How do they walk away, and how are they changed? Well, I think sometimes they they see the breadth the breadth how do you say yeah, that no, word yeah, right. <laughs> of how indigenous culture has come over the years, even prior to to uh, colonization and thereafter. How we're trying to maintain who we are in a huge world, basically, and and I think they begin to realize the struggle kind of that some of us have to maintain that knowledge and to keep it and pass it on to our own children and the rest of the world and the rest of Canada or Manitoba, what have you. And it's sometimes it's a daunting task, you know, to think about, okay, um, to keep this going. But I think a lot of people, when they leave there, they realize, oh, yeah, I never knew that or I never thought of it that way. That's a very common reaction is I never thought of it that way. Right. It's to look at something from a different point of view. And once you do that, you've basically accomplished what we've set out to do is you're passing on that information. It's just to make people think about it, you know, that not everything is one way, you right. know, not mainstream, not everything is mainstream. So, and we're just trying to keep that knowledge going. For sure. It probably just helps with people <coughs> in, in gaining empathy for their fellow human being. You know, they might not even think about certain shit situations or understand like, oh, maybe that's why they act this mm-hmm. way or that's why I've had that thought or that's why this person said this or whatever. So it's mm-hmm. probably just helping give context and give a little bit of sympathy and empathy for different situations. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if our listeners right now are, are hearing this and think, well, there's something I'd like to explore, how, how can they get involved? Do they just come down to the center? Or can they call you? Or what, what's the process Oh, yes, like? they can call us. And we also have a website. It's www.micec.com. All our information is on there. Um, our hours and who, are, who the contact people are. Uh, it is a very small organization. There's only three of us. Wow. <laughs> but That's a we, lot of work for three people. Yes, but we do try to... Um, um, that's the other thing I wanted to bring up. We try to look for people for our expertise bank, I call it. Um, people who like are partners willing, that can help you yeah, do th- the work you're doing. Yeah, to willing to share their knowledge um, because sometimes people don't realize that they have a lot of knowledge. And if they have an opportunity to share that, that would be wonderful. Or even any activities that they're good at, like beading or whatever. You know, as long as it's Indigenous related, um, we're more than welcome. To, you know, they're more than welcome to participate and. Great. Come and check it out. There's probably so many different perspectives over the last hundreds of years that mm-hmm. people have cultivated in their lives that any sort of different perspective is going to help and going to help educate others as well, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Yeah. So for those listening, uh, you can go to micec.com. And the number again is? 204-942-0228. Perfect. So that's uh, Carol Beaulieu, the Community Connections Coordinator at the Manitoba Indigenous Cultural Education Center. Thank you very much for talking to us today. Really appreciate it. Okay, miigwech. Thanks so much, Nolan. And now the next segment in our series, Promising Projects, where we hear from members of the community grants team at the Winnipeg Foundation. And they tell us about some of their favorite upcoming projects and the charitable organizations that are doing amazing work right here in our city. 
Today we'll be hearing from Marie Bouchard, friend of the show. She's been on River City 360 before, and uh, she's a community grants associate at the Winnipeg Foundation. She's going to tell us about the project she's decided to shine some much-needed light on. So without further ado, here's the next installment in our Promising Project series, right here on River City 360. My name is Marie Bouchard. I'm a Community Grants Associate at the Winnipeg Foundation. The project that I want to highlight is a grant that we made to Manitoba Chamber Orchestra and the Sec Malier for audience development. They've embarked on an exciting adventure to present a play called Nana Bojo et le Tambour, in English, Nana Bush and the Drum. This collaboration is very interesting and exciting because it combines a music, which is traditionally offered by Manitoba Chamber Orchestra, and theater, which is traditionally offered by Le Sec Molière. Our grant is going to support audience development. Both MCO and Le Sec Molière, of course, have loyal followings. Um, our grant is going to allow them to do some cross-marketing for each other's audiences, but also to attract new and younger audiences. I think the interdisciplinary nature of this play is very attractive. Uh, the opportunity to be immersed in an, ex in an artistic experience that combines music, dance, theatre uh, is very exciting. There's going to be something for everyone. And it's a very um, innovative and unique way to present a traditional Indigenous story. Some people may have heard of Nana Bush already. It's quite a, he's quite a common figure in Indigenous storytelling and elements of his character can be found in other similar characters in other cultures. But I think that um, in this time of reconciliation, it's really important for audiences in Winnipeg to have an opportunity to experience Indigenous storytelling in a very innovative, um, non-threatening type of way over and above enjoying a really fantastic uh, creative experience, I think that the audience will learn about um, the legacy of the Métis people and the founding of Manitoba because Nana Bush is very much part of that story. And I think too that it's important for, uh, for people in Winnipeg to reimagine our history and the founding of Canada. Good morning and welcome back to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you this morning. And we're now joined in studio by Noah Ehrenberg. He's the convener of Community News Commons Winnipeg's Citizen Journalism Project. Noah, thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. No problem. So CNC covers all sorts of things. CNCWPG.org for our listeners who have yet to go there. Or CommunityNewsCommons.org. Both work. Yes. Um, and what I find really interesting is just the wide array of different kinds of stories that people are telling. You have reviews, you have uh, people going down and, and uh, covering the budgets at City Hall, you have any, literally anything. And uh, this week is no difference. Tell me about some of the stories that are being published on communitynewscommons.org this week. Well, this week, Anne Martin, who does a lot of concert reviews. In fact, Anne Martin has reviewed 101 shows 
for CNC? Time. Well, she's or she, just in general. In general, now cool. we, we she started uh, putting them onto CNC uh, sometime earlier in 2016. Okay. So, so we didn't get all 101 of them. But um, she's also known as Ticket Momster. Ticket Momster, yeah. yeah okay, I've her, read a couple that's of her, her handle, yeah. and uh, and uh, she, like I say, reviewed 101 shows during uh, the 2016, and uh, so she sees a lot of concerts. She and, has a good um, perspective too, because oh, yeah. you know it's it's a, it's not your typical kind of you know reviewer no, that you would it's normally not your get. Typical it's, music it's the reviewer. Ticket Momster, right? Yeah, like that makes I mean, sense. She she basically buys the ticket. She's not getting in for free, and she does a review according to you know what she sees and hears. And and you it know, showed like didn't she review like Kanye? Oh, Kanye this? West. Yeah, that's right. Like, that's right. So recently. it's yeah. not just you know tickets that would be for her age group necessarily. It's It's really cool. She 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 reviews a number of different shows. And so what she's doing for the month of December um is she is uh giving us her top five shows of twenty sixteen. Oh cool. And so uh she just uh, published uh the number five show that she thought, but uh over the course of the next few weeks on uh, communitynewscommons.org, we will see what comes in at awesome. four, three, two, and her favorite Very show. Very nice. And that, uh, I think her favorite one will come in at New Year's Eve. And you don't know what they are. I, I don't know what they are, cool. but uh, I mean, if she saw 101 shows this year, uh, there's a lot, a to, lot choose to choose from. from and yeah. uh, maybe, you know, check it out and see if what, one of the shows that you were at was one of yeah, her favorite Yeah, definitely. Shows. Great. So aside from her views, we also have beat reporters down mm. at City Hall keeping them honest. And I understand uh, there's been some reporting on the, the recently released budgets at that, that City Hall is yeah. Uh, there is a, the city is trying to come up with its budgets for um, for the next year, and so they've got their budgetary debates going on. And Shirley Kowalchuk, uh, she does a terrific job just reporting on a lot of different things. And you know, she uh, you know, maybe she's taking one for the team. I think you know <laughs> when she goes ahead and she watches the debates, uh, the budgetary debates, yeah. uh, and the discussions for hours and hours wow. and hours. And um, I really appreciate the fact that she takes the time to see just how open and accountable City Hall is, mm-hmm. uh, to see what they're talking about with regards the budget debates and um, you know her article I think it would be interesting for people to check it out because you you really try and figure out whether councillors themselves understand their own budgets and how the public is supposed to make sense of it all. Yeah. So I think it's um you know it's a it's a great article in terms of uh, what they're debating in terms of the budgets, but also from the terms of process and accountability and accessibility and you know openness and transparency. And transparency. The question really becomes: uh, Do the do the councillors understand the their budgets? Because it seems like they get them at the eleventh hour and they right. seem to be scrambling a little bit. <laughs> and then if that's the case, then how is the public supposed to make sense yeah. of it all? So. Check out Shirley Kowalczyk's article on the budget debates at City Hall. That's a good angle to come from it from, too, because, you know, it's a citizen journalist that's coming at it. It's oh, not yeah. someone who's well-versed in budgets necessarily or who's been covering them for 10, 20 years like some of the journalists are. Yes. So it's, it's a good set of, good set of fresh eyes on this it, it you know, very is. important thing. Yeah, and she's a great writer, and uh, she comes at it from, a, I think, from a writer's perspective and not necessarily a beat reporter's perspective. Yeah, that's very so cool. it's kind of like a Truman Capote or a Hunter S. Thompson. Very cool. That type of thing. Yeah, so. I love it. <laughs> yeah, Gonzo so journalism. Indeed. Gonzo citizen journalism. We've invented a new... <laughs> new invented a new, new term thing. here. That's great. Yeah. So uh, tell me about the third story that you wanted to share with us. I understand it's something to do with the Nutcracker or something to do with... Stuffed bears, or what? Tell exactly. me, tell me about it. Well, the Nutcracker Ballet, of course, is synonymous with Christmas. We always hear about that. The RWB puts it on. Well, the RWB is also one of their troop members 
is going to be reading from the original uh, story of the Nutcracker oh, over cool. at the children or in the children's area of Millennium Library. Nice. Uh, that'll be on December the seventeenth from uh, two to three p.m. and um, that's a great thing. But in addition to that, there's these stuffed bears. If you've been on the main floor of the Millennium Library in the children's area. There's nine stuffed bears in there that are from an, a, a, one of the adaptations of the story. And these bears have a very interesting history. These nine bears were originally part of Eaton's famous and much-loved Christmas uh, display at, oh, yeah. uh, at the Eaton store here in, in Winnipeg. And, uh, and then there were other bears that were at other Eaton stores across the country. And when the Eaton store here closed, um, they were donated to um, the uh, to the Millennium Library, okay. uh, or at least they were donated to the city, and then it wasn't until Millennium Branch opened up that they decided to use these bears. Interesting. In so there's some history with these there's things. There's some very I would interesting. History. They've been around for a while. They've seen a lot of things. Seen a lot of Winnipeggers go yeah. by. So Anne Haw uh, describes the bears. She describes what each of them, the characters of each of them. So it's actually a really nice. A uh, little poignant story about the Nutcracker, about the fact that an RWB uh, troop member is going to be reading from the story at Millennium Library and these bears that kind of peer around the corner. Right in time for the holidays. That's Indeed. perfect timing on communitynewscommons.org. Mm-hmm. So, Noah, at the end of our time together, I've asked you to bring in uh, maybe some music that our listeners haven't heard of before. And since it is that time of year, well, I understand you brought us something that fits the uh, fits the holiday theme. So what have you got for us this week? Yeah, it is that. A special time of year again so we uh, I'd like to uh, introduce a, a song by JP Ho uh, who's one of my favorite local artists um, he has a song uh, he's a very he's an acclaimed folk pop poet I guess you would call him and um, uh, every year he uh, transforms well at least it's this year it'll be at the Burton Cummings Theater mm. uh, but he creates this sort of wonderland of holiday cheer um, with some help from musical friends and it's it's now in its 10th year and it's an wow. event that has sort of become this sort of Winnipeg tradition and it promises to be really special. It's on December the 16th uh, at the Burton Cummings Theatre and I think you might be able to get tickets for it. I'm not really sure because um, they do go quickly. Mm-hmm. So uh, to celebrate um, Christmas and to celebrate the fact that we've got some great local musicians here, some of them doing Christmas songs, and to celebrate J.P. Ho's December 16th concert over at the Burton Cummings Theatre, we've got a special treat for your ears. This is Ho's uh, original Christmas song, Sing O Holy Night, off of his Ho, 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 holiday song EP. Very clever. <laughs> Indeed. I'm Noah Ehrenberg, and you're listening to Robert Zirk and Nolan Bicknell of River City 360 here on CGNU 93.7 FM. I will send you letters when the snow begins to fall upon your covered head. Invite you to the table where we talk about the year and all the skin we shed. When nine o'clock appears, we head into the den. Assume the same positions with our instruments, singing.
selecting from the hymnals preached by John and Paul and Ringo too. Interwoven with the melodies, the minor keys that speak some sacred truth. It's still outside with frost that bites three sleeps to go. That's a wrap on this week's episode of River City 360. Thank you so much for listening, and a huge thank you to all of our guests that talked to us today. If you'd like to hear more views and news from around Winnipeg, listen to any of our past episodes, or subscribe to our podcast, please visit us online. The address is rivercity360.org. Again, that's rivercity360.org. River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg is a project of the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM. And you know as well as we do, we love listener feedback. So we invite you to give us a call any time of day. It's a 24-7 listener line, so it doesn't matter if you're listening to the show live, if it's just after the show, or if you're listening to the podcast online. We'd love to hear from you. Leave us a message. Give us a call. Let us know what you think. Let us know if there's a song you'd like to hear, if there's a story idea that you think would be a great feature for River City 360, or just call in to say hi. Give us a call. We would love to hear from you. Our number is 204-944-9474, extension 360. Again, that's 204-944-9474, extension 360. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at RiverCity360 on Twitter and RiverCity360 on Facebook as well. I'm Nolan Bicknell signing off for River City 360. And I'm Robert Zirk. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have a great Sunday. When your turn comes around.